Second Timothy chapter 3. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Morning. We're continuing this morning our our mini-series on scripture. So last week, uh, Kyle preached on the power of God's word from Psalm 19. And next week, uh, John will preach on the authority of Scripture uh, from Deuteronomy. Uh, Pastor Dave is expected to return sometime tonight. He is en route. Um, So this next week, he'll spend time recovering from traveling, uh, catching up on on sleep schedule, be with his family, and then, uh, Lord willing, in two weeks, he'll he'll be back preaching and Pick up with Genesis. So this morning we're going to look at the sufficiency of Scripture. And one of the reasons, as we were planning this this little series out, um, one of the things that we thought was important was this is such an important doctrine in the church for the the health of the church. Throughout church history, the church has had to defend herself from all kinds of false teachings and attacks on doctrine. And, and threats to drift towards orth, away from orthodoxy. But almost always, the underneath whatever doctrine it was, was an assault on Scripture. The sufficiency, or the inerrancy, or the authority of it. So during the Reformation, the issue at, of the day was, was salvation and justification by faith alone. But for Martin Luther and the other reformers, underneath that was the insistence that whatever understanding of salvation we have, it must come from Scripture and Scripture alone. That Scripture is sufficient to provide doctrine for us. So this became known as sola scriptura, which is really what the sufficiency of Scripture is. So again, when the sufficiency is attacked, or, or the doctrine of Scripture itself other doctrines can quickly fall. So that's one of the reasons I wanted us to look at at Scripture for the next three weeks. And in addition to that, my hope would be that we have greater confidence in this book. And it would do a number of things. It would strengthen our faiths. It would motivate us to read and know the Bible. And ultimately, it would make us obey it and grow in godliness because of it. So as we look at, at 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is instructing Timothy from a sp- specific situation. 
it's not that he just wants to have the doctrine of sufficiency explained and it's removed from everything else. It takes place in a particular context. And so the context for Paul is persecution. And he's preparing Timothy for more of the same. And in fact, things are going from bad to worse outside and inside the church. So in such troubling times that Paul and Timothy are facing, what's the thing that Paul will point Timothy to? Is it a new strategy? Is it time to take up swords and fight? Paul tells Timothy to stick to the old roads. Hold fast to the word of God as he has been taught. And Paul goes on to explain why this is a good strategy, why it's enough. It's because the word The word of God is sufficient for all things, for both faith and for godliness. So if this was a lecture, I'd start at verses 15 or 16 maybe. But this isn't a lecture series. These are truths from particular contexts to be preached. So we don't take our doctrine in a vacuum. It has a particular setting, and that matters for us as well today. As I I studied it this week, it it struck me how timeless Scripture can be. So we'll look at the sufficiency of Scripture, but we'll also look at Paul's context and what it might have to do with us as well. So the main point of the passage and the main point of this sermon is that the Bible is all we need to live a godly life, no matter the situation. I'll say that again. The Bible is all we need to live a godly life, no matter the situation. So as we look at the passage, I'll I'll break it up into several parts. If you have the study guide, you'll see the outline there. First, we'll look at the scene, the, the background that causes Paul to exhort Timothy. And then we'll also look at, at what the command is, what the what the purpose of Scripture is. And then we'll also spend time looking more at sufficiency, what it is, what it isn't, why it matters. And I'll also give some ways that we can work to increase our confidence in Scripture. That if we believe that Scripture is sufficient, we should be able to put our faith in that. That it is capable of what it says. So before we dive in, would you pray with me? Would you ask the Lord to speak to us through this passage and accomplish all that he sets out to do? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a good God. There is nothing good that you withhold from your children. We can know you. We can know what you require of us without any subjective searching or groping in the darkness or guessing what you might want. We can know you plainly from your word. Help us this morning to recognize our need for your word and for your son. Please keep us from going through the motions of playing church. We want to worship you with right offerings. You say that your word, all 66 books of it, is profitable. Please teach us that we would know the gospel better, that we would love your word, that we would know your character more truly, that we would have wisdom to discern all the decisions and challenges we face in our days. Please reprove us where we have strayed and gotten things wrong. 
Father, you are gracious, even in convicting us of sin. Please help us to see it for our good, that it is good. Please gently correct us. Show us a more excellent way than our sinful hearts know. And please train us in righteousness. Equip us for every good work. I pray that Grace Church would be increasingly filled with disciples of Christ who are growing in maturity. May we be a city on a hill that others would see and acknowledge your glory. Father, that's a lot to ask for, but not too much for you. May Christ be praised this morning. May your spirit work on us. Please show us mercy and grace. Amen. Well, before we get to our immediate passage, verses 10 through 17, let me set a quick stage for 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is a letter written by Paul personally to Timothy. Timothy was his disciple. He was trained by Paul. He traveled with Paul. They wrote letters to other churches together. They were partners in ministry. And now Timothy is in Ephesus pastoring the church there. And so Paul's writing pastoral instructions. And Paul sees his time on earth coming to an end. So he's preparing Timothy to continue on, to take up the torch and and continue. And when we look at the the context of what Paul's about to say, we we need to look a little bit further back in in chapter 3. So looking at verse 1, if, if you've got your Bible open, you might even see the, headline, the heading of it, godlessness in the last days or something like that. Look at verse 1. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And then he goes on to describe the type of people that they will face, the, the difficult people. And it's just a long list of wickedness and rebellion. So Paul's warning people, Paul's warning Timothy about the godlessness that surrounds him. And by last days, Paul doesn't mean end times or at the end of the age. It simply means, as it does many other places in the New Testament, that Paul's in the last days. Since Christ has come and ascended, they're in the last days. So Paul's in the last days, Timothy's in the last days, we are in the last days. And Paul's warning about the godlessness that seems to be increasing. So he goes into further detail. And then he gets to to verse 10. And he has the contrast between the godless people and Timothy. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Timothy's been discipled by Paul. He's seen Paul's life and his teachings, and he's seen his teachings match up with his life. Paul's life is full of virtue and godly character. And on top of it, Paul has faced almost endless persecutions for preaching the gospel. He was jailed. He was beaten. He was chased out of towns. He was even stoned. He mentions here Antioch and Iconium and Lystra as three of the towns. These are from some of the earliest travels of Paul in Acts 14. Here's some of that account as he made his way to Lystra. 
But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So he faces deadly opposition from the Jews. They stone him, hoping to kill him. They didn't like that he was preaching Jesus as the Messiah and that the Messiah had been crucified and risen from the dead. So they stoned Paul. But as he mentions in our passage in in 2 Timothy, the Lord rescued him. So when the stoning didn't work, he got up and kept preaching the gospel. And then Paul goes on. And as he's teaching and instructing uh, other disciples, he mentions that the way to enter the kingdom is through many tribulations, which is the very next thing in our passage that Paul will mention to Timothy. Look at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's pretty sobering here. If you want to live a godly life, which any Christian should want to do, you will be persecuted. Paul is following Christ's path through suffering and persecution. Paul follows Christ. Now Paul is encouraging Timothy to follow his example. And he's also calling all of us, all Christians, all believers, to follow along with Timothy on that road to persecution. Which is really just another way of saying that anyone who desires to follow Jesus, which is really what living a godly life is, if you want to follow Jesus, you must follow him through suffering and persecution. This is the very thing Jesus says in the Gospels. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny myself, take up his cross, and follow me. So ask yourself, honestly, do you want to live a godly life? Do you want to live a life that is pleasing to God and God alone? Knowing what we've read, that's a hard question. That's very different than, do you want to live a comfortable life? By comfortable life, I don't mean that being godly is an absence of all comforts. I mean, it's easy when things are going well to want to follow Jesus, to want to live a godly life. But as persecution comes, the comfortable life will fight to hold on to comfort or maybe duck hard things in order to preserve their standard of life. But if you want to live a godly life, Paul is telling us what the cost is. We will be persecuted. Like he said earlier in in Acts 14, the way to the kingdom is through many tribulations. Paul continues on in verse 13, and he describes the opposition they face. Evil people and imposters will threaten the church. This is a situation that Paul and Timothy faced in the first century. 
And we're seeing these kinds of pressures here as well. Bad to worse. That could describe our current environment. Outside the church, we see national and state leaders overstepping their authority. We see them caught in lies and scandal. We see a culture more and more in love with pleasure and self. And in the name of tolerance, people wanting to punish any dissenters to this way of thinking. And even inside the church, and by church I mean the broader evangelical church. We've always had false teachers, but we're seeing pastors and leaders who are being seen as imposters. You might even have one of their books on your shelf or listen to a podcast or seen them at a conference. And maybe it's because we have greater access to public personalities and we're able to notice it more. But we are in a time where people seem more willing to forsake sound doctrine and faithfulness to Christ in exchange for pleasing culture in a number of different areas. So here's, here's one example of where this is showing up in, in our culture now within the church. One of the prime threats in our culture is the idea that you need to understand the standpoint of various people in order to truly understand an issue. For example, there are some that insist that you can't truly understand race relations or reconciliation unless you understand it from a certain person's perspective, a certain person's experience. You can't truly understand other topics unless you have experience in that area or you have read certain books in order to understand it. And worse, if you don't have experience in that area, you might be labeled something like racist or misogynist. My point isn't to delve into those particular issues, but to point out some of the thinking that is showing up that is a threat to the sufficiency of Scripture. It's an insistence that you need something more than scripture to truly know certain issues in this world, to truly be able to speak to those topics. And I'm not aware of that being an immediate issue here at Grace, but this is the kind of thinking that's being pushed in evangelical circles. It can be subtle, it can be louder, but it's there. And we need to be aware of it. And we need to combat it when needed. So outside... And inside, just as in Paul's time, things seem to be going from bad to worse. You know, in in past years, we could rely on our government at least to make certain decisions and policies that more lined up with a general biblical worldview. What the Bible generally says is right, but that is eroded rapidly. Things are going from bad to worse. And Paul continues warning that these people will go on both deceiving and being deceived. People who are evil and teaching falsely are both trying to deceive others while they themselves are deceived. When you go away from the truth, you are deceived. So what's the remedy for this? How are we to prepare and then endure persecution? Paul gives the answer in in 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul contrasts the godless people with Timothy. He says, but as for you, Timothy, you're not like them. So under the threat of persecution with deceivers surrounding, Paul tells Timothy to hold fast to what he already knows. He's traveled with Paul. He's seen his character. He's heard his teachings. Paul and others have discipled Timothy well. And now it's time, not for something new, but to simply stay the course. Of all the things Paul could tell Timothy as his last words, Paul instructs him to remain faithful. Remain faithful to the sacred writings. This is nothing new for Timothy or for us, which is opposite of their opponents who are always looking for something new. Now, beyond Paul's tutelage, Timothy was also taught by his mother and his grandmother. Second Timothy mentions that earlier. And this should be an encouragement and a challenge to both parents and grandparents. It's an encouragement that what you are teaching has the potential to remain with them for a long time. And it's a challenge to make sure that we're teaching them well, to make sure that we are teaching them God's word and how to apply it in all things in order that they wouldn't depart when they're old. This is a high bar to help our kids understand all of life from a biblical worldview, to prevent being deceived and to prepare for persecution and in all of it to live a godly life. The sacred writings that Paul's talking about here represent, it's come to represent what we know as the whole Bible. But when Paul wrote this letter, the sacred writings he's talking about are primarily the Old Testament. So think about this. Paul is reading a letter from, I'm sorry, Timothy is reading a letter from Paul. At that point, there's no New Testament. There's no second Timothy. Paul's reminding him of the sacred writings, the Old Testament that he's been taught. And just like the New Testament, like our passage here, the Old Testament speaks highly of itself, of Scripture. I'll just point point us to a few places here. Deuteronomy 8, all over Deuteronomy, it talks about the Word of God. It says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Psalm 119, another psalm filled with meditations on scripture. Several verses talk to the the completeness, the sufficiency of God's word. Listen for the alls. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. Later on, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And once again, my tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. It's talking about this sufficiency of Scripture. And sometimes with the Old Testament, we can dismiss it or minimize it or overemphasize the New Testament. 
But we must know the entire story. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. We must know all of it, not just the most readable or the most familiar parts or the parts where Jesus and the gospel are most explicit. We must know all of scripture. Timothy is familiar with the Old Testament. He grew up learning it. But it's also clear that he's been taught how the Old Testament, the sacred writings, connects to Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And it's only when we understand that, that Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament talks about, that we can really understand the gospel. And this is what Timothy knows. This is what he believes. We see in verse 15 that scripture is able to make us wise unto salvation. Kyle preached about the power of scripture last week. And here's another example of its power. It's able to open our dead, unbelieving hearts to know the gospel and to be saved. Bring death to life. Scripture tells this gospel. It tells the story of redemption. It tells how we've rebelled against God. And that's our greatest problem. That our rebellion earns God's wrath. But the story of the gospel is how we can be saved from God's wrath and be justified, declared not guilty before a holy God. And it's only through knowing the gospel and believing the gospel that we do receive life. And it's only a new life that we can actually be wise, that we can actually understand scripture. And unless we have life, we remain in our ignorance and unbelief. We remain deceived and we can't truly understand scripture. But scripture is more, far more than just salvation. It contains all we need for godliness as well. And that brings us to our next point. Sufficiency is for every good work. Look at verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture works in various ways. It's the story of redemption so that we can be saved, to make us wise unto salvation. But it also has something to say for every area of life. The Bible has more to say in some areas than others, but God speaks to everything in some way. So Paul lists four ways that scripture is profitable. So I'm going to go through these quickly. Number one is teaching. This is maybe the most straightforward way, whether it's formal teaching like Sunday school or preaching a sermon. We all profit from learning God's word. That can also be done in small settings. It helps us to know true things about God and his world and also helps us to combat false teachings and wrong worldviews. In a world where people are deceiving and being deceived, it's important to cut through that deception with scripture. Number two is reproof. Reproof is pointing out error or conviction of sin. As we read, study, and hear scripture, it convicts us of sin and wrong thinking. A good example of this is found in Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, 
and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It exposes what's in our hearts. Number three is correction. Correction is the other side of reproof. So if reproof is is conviction of sin, of doing and thinking wrongly, correction is the positive way to do or think rightly. This is illustrated well by places like Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, where we have these long passages talking about the idea of putting off and then putting on, putting on righteousness. Number four, training in righteousness. Scripture is profitable for righteousness. That we can actually train and be trained to live godly lives, regardless of our surroundings. It might be hard, definitely won't be popular, but Scripture is able to train us to live righteous lives in this world. Notice, too, that it says all Scripture is profitable. That means old and new, law and gospel, narratives, epistles, genealogies, dietary laws, tribal allotments. There's something profitable to all of it. It doesn't mean all Scripture is equally clear or even equally profitable, but all Scripture is profitable. This is one of the benefits of expository preaching as well. We don't pick and choose what we get to preach. The primary diet is that we work through books, and that way we don't miss anything. We want to profit from everything that that we come across. So all scripture is profitable. What's the purpose of it? We see this in verse 17. All of these things that we just talked about are so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's purpose in all things for us is to bring him glory in all things. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, well-known passage. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do we do all to the glory of God? We need scripture to help us know how. So we can glorify God in all situations. And that's what it means to be equipped for every good work. In the immediate context, Paul is saying that the scripture will equip Timothy to face persecution and deceivers. But that every, that every good work means scripture equips the Christian for any and every situation, whether it's things going from bad to worse or not. It provides what we need for all of life to live in a God-glorifying way. So I want to talk quickly about the sufficiency of scripture. What Exactly is it? What are some things that we don't mean when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture? So first, when we talk about sufficiency, what is it? I borrowed heavily heavily from theologian John Frame and, and came up with this definition. Scripture contains all the divine words necessary to know both salvation and also how to please God in life. God has something to say to every situation in this world. But it doesn't mean that he has an equal amount of words for every situation. Sometimes we need to apply what God has said as a rule or principle and apply it to our our situation. For example, the Bible doesn't really mention abortion explicitly, but we can take what God has said 
clearly about other things God has said, about babies created in God's image, the preciousness of life, and the command not to kill. And taking those things and being able to apply it to an issue like abortion, and we have a way to understand how to think and act about that topic. Additionally, with sufficiency, we don't add or subtract to Scripture. The Bible gives serious warnings about adding or subtracting. At the very end of Scripture, Revelation 22 warns about adding. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. It means that the canon, our scripture, is closed. We shouldn't be looking for more books to be added. We also can't take away and minimize sections of scripture. God has given us everything we need to know him, to know salvation, and to know how to obey him. So what sufficiency is not? I mentioned sola scriptura. Sometimes people think that that means only scripture, solo scriptura. Hopefully it's obvious that that's not what we're talking about here. It doesn't mean that because we have God's word and that we're saying that it's sufficient, that we have no need for other books or other sources of information. If you've been in my office or at my home, you know that I love books. Books can be a great blessing. Many books contain deep truths about God or his world. They expound on scripture. They apply scripture. They help us think deeper about scripture, but they are not in addition to scripture in order to live a godly life. We also, one of the errors is that that means that God must speak exhaustively on every topic. God has something to say on everything that we might think or do, but he doesn't speak equally to every topic. Think about a birthday party. Nothing in scripture speaks specifically to how to throw a birthday party, but there's principles that we can apply, that it would be a a God-glorifying birthday party. Now compare that to how to conduct service on the Lord's Day. God has much more to say about how to conduct a, a worship service that is pleasing in his sight. Because it's more foundational to our duties before God in bringing him glory. Science is an area that sometimes comes, seems to come in conflict with the sufficiency of scripture. The Bible doesn't explain every detail of the natural world. Because the Bible isn't primarily concerned with biology and chemistry. But we know that God created all things. We know that God designed all things to work a certain way. There's other things that we can figure out about this world through science. But ultimately, whatever we understand from science will reconcile with how God created this world and how he sustains this world. In the same way that God doesn't speak exhaustively on every topic, we can't know God exhaustively. We can't know everything there is to know about every topic either. 
But God has provided enough for us to know, to know who God is, to know how this world works, to know how to live a godly life in this world. So instead of trying to find out every answer, have all our questions answered, rest in the fact that God has revealed enough. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Worry about what God has revealed and do those, and you can live a godly life. So going back to Paul's command, why why scripture? Why is he saying in the face of persecution, in the face of things going bad to worse, why scripture? Our father is trustworthy. He's given us his word. And just as he's given us everything we need for salvation in Christ, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And it's in his word. Imagine what would happen if he didn't give us everything. If he just gave us partial information. We would constantly have to wonder if we know enough, or if we've done enough, or if we're believing the right things. Is God pleased with us? How would I know? If God's word is not complete, that would be a kind of cruel joke. Where God is leading his people on in some kind of guessing game. But God is not cruel, and he doesn't lead us on. His word is sufficient for everything he expects out of us. Here's an example from scripture of what Paul is encouraging Timothy with. This is how Jesus fought temptation. When he was in the wilderness for 40 days, starving, tired, and tempted, Imagine all the ways he could have fought Satan, the ultimate deceiver. He could have called down fire at him or had angels come to his side or open up the earth and have it swallow Satan. But Jesus used scripture. He quoted things like, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word. And, it, and when Satan misused scripture as a deceiver, Jesus corrected and used more scripture, and used it properly. So if Jesus, the incarnate word, sees scripture as sufficient, even for suffering and persecution, then we can and should too. We see Paul following Jesus' example, and for all of us to follow the same example. So how can we increase our trust in God's word? We might be convinced It's sufficient, I know that. But I don't run to Scripture first. How can we increase our confidence that Scripture has all we need in order to face whatever we face? Let me give you five ways. Number one, continue in what you've learned. This is the command Paul gives Timothy. It's the command for us as well. Continue, hold fast to, remain in your knowledge of the word. And none of us has arrived in our knowledge of Scripture. We all must continue in what we've been taught and keep growing in our knowledge. Join us in Sunday school where we devote ourselves to studying Scripture. 
so that we can all gain confidence in its sufficiency together. Or if you don't have a reading plan, find one and start reading. Be familiar with the big story and dive deeper into smaller passages as well. If you don't know where to start or how to do it, find someone. Talk to me or one of the elders. We talk to someone else at Grace and study together. God gave us a book as the way to know him. So we must be readers. We must learn how to study and do it. None of us gets to say, I'm not really a reader. That's not my thing. If you've come to believe in the gospel, you must be readers. You must be lovers of the word. And that doesn't mean everyone will be a scholar, but we're called to know God's word and how it affects everything we are to do. Number two, see scripture like scripture does. Verse 16 says, all scripture is God breathed. This means it's ultimately God speaking. If you want to hear from God, you don't have to wait for the still small voice. God has spoken in his word and it has everything we need. So when you open up your Bible, you are hearing from Jesus. Expect that. Expect to be changed when you read. Maybe it's not an immediate change, but it will change us. It will teach. It will reprove, correct, and train us. Number three, teach others. Scripture is profitable for teaching. Timothy was taught by Paul, by the other apostles, by his mother and grandmother. We must teach one another. Parents, of course, but a disciple is to be taught and to teach. So we need to do that for one another. And that doesn't always mean a formal setting, but more often it will look like studying the scriptures with one another, reading the word at discipleship groups, or explaining things during family worship or with a friend. Number three, don't be ashamed of God's word. This is a story with talking snakes, giants killed by stones, worldwide floods, and a God who became a man who died, was buried, and rose three days later. People will think it's folly. People will label us. People will frame us as fools. The Bible expected that and doesn't seem too bothered by it. So we shouldn't either. So don't be ashamed. Number five, let scripture be your main diet. There are tons of other sources of information and thought. And that can be good and beneficial. But watch how much intake you're getting from other places. The flow of information is endless. News, books, social media, movies, podcasts. They're all fine. But our main diet must be regular intake of scripture. Read the whole story. Read deeply. Understand these truths and then obey them. Hear the preached word. Study with one another. Read books that help explain and apply scripture. So here's my conclusion. When we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, it's impossible to separate the sufficiency of scripture from Christ himself. He is the word of God. Hebrews 1 connects scripture with Jesus in this way. Long ago, 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The father gave us everything we need to know for salvation and to live godly lives in this world. And he gave us his son so that we could be saved, so that we could know God. He sent his son to be, to be faced with persecution, yet without sin. He fulfilled all scripture. He spoke and taught with the authority of God. And ultimately, we all can take confidence in scripture because all of scripture points to our Lord, Jesus Christ. When we're faced with hard things, the more we know the character of God, the more we can rest in his protection. We can know the truths in scripture and be able to discern false teachings and false worldviews. We can better trust the promises God makes to his people and take heart that they are as good as accomplished. And we can look to the hope of Christ's return and the ultimate victory that that contains. These are reasons why sufficiency matters. We can't predict or control what will happen in our current circumstances. Things might move from bad to worse. We might face evil and imposters. But in all of it, God's word is enough. God's son is enough for us to endure. We must use scripture as our guide to discern truth and cut through false teaching. We must use scripture to grow our faith and persevere in the face of tribulation. For that is the way to the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. That through, through Christ, we can know truth. We can know the gospel and be made wise unto salvation. Thank you for your spirit who illuminates scripture for us. Please make us a strong church, ready to endure whatever is in front of us. We pray for saints around the world who do face persecution. Strengthen churches, strengthen pastors in the hard places. Give them a love for your word and a confidence that is sufficient for all things that they would grab onto the promises you make to them. Father, stir in us a greater desire to live godly lives, no matter the cost. May your word do what it sets out to do, that we would be equipped for every good work and that we would do good works this week. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.